Please open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 43. If you are new to the Bible or it's been a long time since you've been at church, it'll help you to know that Genesis is the very first, what we call as Christians often, books of the Bible. So the Bible is very ancient book itself. It is made up of, we sometimes call them books. It's really like 66 documents. Some of these books are longer than others. Some are half a page long. Genesis is one of the longest ones, hence chapter 43. And we still have, after this chapter, seven more chapters left. But we've been working our slowly through this book of Genesis I had in mind uh, to preach the entire chapter. In fact, that's what I had scheduled this week. But as I was preparing, um, I got to verse 14, and it felt like, if I could use the analogy of an airplane, it felt like that was a good place to land. So we're going to land a little earlier than I had anticipated. But I think it is worth these 14 verses. There's much for us to consider in it. But before we begin studying God's word, would you join me in just a brief word of prayer? Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray, O God, that today, as we look into your word, the path that we are on will become a little more illumined. More than that, O Father, we pray that your word will shine a light not only on our life and on our path, but on our our hearts. For your word does expose. It exposes us. But your word not only exposes, not only wounds, it heals. And so, Father, we pray that by your mercy, by your spirit, as we study your word this morning, that you will so work in us that we will be both wounded and healed, served and helped, your good word. It is in your son's name, your perfect word. We pray, Christ Jesus. Amen. Some stories are are told and retold. I'm sure there are books that you have probably read again and again and again. Maybe there is a movie that you have watched again and again and again. You you know the lines, you you know what's coming, but every time it just makes you chuckle, it makes you laugh, or it makes you cry. Some stories we just enjoy. One of those stories that comes down to us, it has been retold and repackaged in all sorts of ways, is the story uh, of what happened... The traditional date is April 24th, 1189 B.C. It is uh, told by Homer in one of his epics. It is a a mythological story. It is the story of the Spartans, the Greeks, taking the city of Troy by use of a what we now call the Trojan horse. Men hiding in the the horse and in this large wooden horse and... um, For reasons that none of us can fathom, the Trojans thought, let's bring that horse into our city and we'll revel and they bring it in. And of course, you know the story during the night when everyone is asleep and after the party has ended, the men escape from the horse 
and uh, wreak havoc, opening the gates, and the, the Greeks win the day. That's a, that's a story that continues to, to be told again and again and again. And this is such a good story. And, you know, the story of Joseph is, is one such story. If you have read the Bible, you probably remember this story so very well. It is a, a powerful story. It, it's more than a rags-to-riches story. It's almost a riches-to-rags and then a return-to-unfathomable-riches kind of story. And Joseph is the son of the grandson of Abraham, Abraham having received special promises from God. In fact, what we are told in the early parts of Genesis is that God himself makes a special covenant relationship with Abraham. And he makes promises within that covenant. And this covenant is that God says, you do this and I will do this. And the special covenant that he makes with Abraham is that when you fail, it will not be You will not be cut off from this relationship. Rather, I will be the one to bear those wounds. And God made incredible promises. One, that Abraham, though he was childless, not not only at that time, but for decades after, that Abraham would have a descendant. And not just one descendant, he would have a multitude of descendants that could not be counted. But more than just a large family or a long and large family tree, God promised Abraham that the place of Canaan would be his one day and that through him the world would be blessed. We see throughout Genesis the, the beginnings of the fulfillment of these promises. Abraham sometimes does really well. He sometimes fails. He has a son, Isaac, who is that same covenant is is made to him as well, conveyed to him as well. And he sometimes does well, sometimes fails. And his son, Jacob, well, Jacob fails for a very long time before he shows any faith in the Lord. And Jacob finally himself will have sons. And if you've read through the book of Genesis, you may know that He has four wives, something that he is not supposed to do, but he he does. But from these four wives, he has 12 children. And Joseph is the 11th son. And Joseph was a goody two-shoes. He was the hard worker when his other brothers were out doing things that they weren't supposed to do. He, He brings a bad report to them, to his father at one point. He is... Favored by his parents. He is shown special affection and attention. Given a, what we call the coat of many colors. Or a highly decorative apparel. It's like his dad went to the uh, clearance section of Walmart to buy everything for his other sons. But for Joseph, he takes him down to the nice part of the King of Prussia Mall and buys him whatever he wants. And and this favoritism doesn't go unnoticed by his brothers. Joseph's brothers hate him. And then Joseph, he receives a a set of dreams, two dreams. And he knows that these dreams are not normal dreams. They are the very revelation of God. And they tell him that he is one day going to rule over his brothers, his family. They are going to come and bow down to him. 
which only made his older brothers love him that much more, right? No, they hated him that much more. What arrogance, what pride that he would think that we would ever bow down to him. When given the opportunity far from home, the, older, the ten older brothers sell Joseph to slave traders. And Joseph himself is taken to Egypt far away and sold into slavery. Yet Joseph remains faithful above all expectations. He remains trusting and faithful to God and God rewards his faith in Joseph's work. And he excels as a slave. Only, you remember, to be falsely accused, falsely condemned, thrown in prison. Where once again, Joseph shows continued faith in God. It's incredible faith. He rises within the prison to be a leader of the prisoners. And he himself, through a series of providential events, is brought before Pharaoh. And he is given, because of his ability to to do what no one else can do, to declare what will be, and because God has given him special wisdom to discern how to navigate the difficult way and forest ahead, or the, the difficult pathway ahead, he is given authority over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And as the predicted famine comes, Joseph is the one who is in authority, and his brothers come from a distant country. And they come to Joseph, and we saw in the last chapter how Joseph, whereas before when he was young, he just unwisely tells his family, this is what I dreamed. But now he sets out, he, he unwise, or he rather he wisely does not reveal his identity. He wisely holds on to it, and he tests his brothers to know what is in their hearts. And that test is that he, he takes one of the brothers, puts him in prison, sends the rest of the brothers home, and he says, look, you bring your other brother back to me, your youngest brother, my youngest brother, Benjamin, the one with whom he has the closest relationship, for they are born of the same mother. He says, you bring Benjamin back to me, and I will know. Or rather, then I will, I will know who you say you are. You say you're not spies. And I will release to you Simeon, your brother. And you may take him and go on your way. He is giving them the same test, to see, similar test to what they threw him into. Would they abandon Simeon the way they abandoned him? And while the brother's on the way home, they find, they, one brother finds in his... In his gear, all the money that should have gone to paying for the material that was bought, all the foodstuffs that were bought. When they get home, they explain everything that happens to their father, Jacob, also known as Israel. And, and while they're explaining things to him, they dump out everything that they have bought, brought from Egypt. And there they too find all of their money. Jacob believes that not only is now Joseph lost, but so is Simeon. And that brings us to this chapter where we see 
this crisis getting worse and worse by measure. We see this in verses 1 to 14, and I'm going to read through the entire, these entirety of the 14 verses, and then we will look and walk our way through this uh, fairly quickly. Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, that man being Joseph, but Joseph dressed as an Egyptian, speaking Egyptian. They do not recognize him nor know him. He is simply the man to them. Judah solemnly spoke to him, warning us, spoke to him saying, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel, this is Jacob, their father, said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, and here you can tell it's the whole brothers talking, it's not merely Judah, it's they said. But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words. Could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be a surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps, perhaps, even though this is a long shot, perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother Benjamin also and arise. Go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. We see in this passage how the crisis by chapter 43 has only gotten worse. Joseph has been in the land of Egypt more than 20 years by this point. 13 years as a slave and prisoner We're not sure of quite the breakdown there. Seven years, he has served as at the leisure of Pharaoh as second in command. Seven years of good. And now he is in one or two years of this crisis. His brothers have already gone down once. They have now returned. 
And this food shortage, which has extended far beyond Egypt, it is touching all over the world at this point. They have gotten worse and worse. Their supplies have gotten dangerously low. We see that when the brothers are, when Judah is pleading with his dad, send us down. We have got to go down. If we do not, it is death to us. We will starve. If we would have gone down, if you would have sent us already, we could have made this trip already. But now things are, we are literally scraping the bottom of the barrel. It will be difficult. And it is that famine that is the setting, however. It is, in every great story, there is a crisis. But the famine is not the crisis. The famine is not the the most difficult thing that they are facing, though it feels like the most difficult thing that they are facing. It is merely the setting in which God is at work. The world is in crisis, but the threat of starvation and death is only the, the setting for the conflict. The real conflict, the real issue in the world is how is God going to bring about spiritual restoration for these men? These men who have up till now almost entirely outside of Judah and outside of Isaac or, I'm sorry, Jacob or Israel, outside of them, they have displayed very little faith in God. In fact, what we have seen of them up to this point has only been scandalous, alarming, terrible behavior. And God is determined to restore them, to reconcile with them. And I find it fascinating here that despite the famine being the a worldwide crisis, the real issue that God is at work isn't merely to show how he can provide for his people. He is more interested in their spiritual health and well-being than he is in whether their stomachs are full. You know, we we can so often be worried about the state of affairs in our world today. We see the conflict going on in Europe. We see the state of our own economy here, the fragmentation, the the outrage, the, the arguing. We have issues in our own personal lives. We worry about what people think of us. We worry about our jobs. We worry about our health, our conflict with with other people. We worry about making ends meet. We worry about so much. And yet, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, despite the fact that the, the famine represents a real threat to God's people, we must see that in the in the providential hand of God, this famine has been directed by God for God's people. It is directed and brought about. The whole world is dealing with this for the sake of God's people, for the ultimate glory and good of God's people. So that all who trust in Christ will one day, so that Christ will be there one day, and so that all who trust in Him may be redeemed. And God plunged the whole world into crisis so that he might bring about the repentance and restoration of these men. 
This is why Joseph, led by God, doesn't, doesn't reveal his identity. He is trying to serve his brothers better than only providing food for them. And it begs the question, what is the setting at which God is now at work in your life? What is that point of anxiety for you? What is that thing that when you wake up in the middle of the night, your mind goes to? What is it that gets you angry and upset? What, that, what is it that causes you fear? All of this is a setting. All of this is merely the, the hot water in which our lives, like a tea bag, are, are revealed. Our hearts are revealed. Even when it feels like the whole world is bent against us, if you have trusted in Christ, you can be sure that the whole world is bent by God for you. For God is at work in you. And we see immediately that the family is almost torn apart by this crisis. It's almost as if we've been given a window into an ongoing argument. We have no idea how many months that first trip to Egypt uh, the food from that first trip to Egypt lasted. Was it two, three, six months? Was it, a, was it an entire year? We're not sure. We just know that by uh, a few more chapters in Genesis 45, we are told that there are still five more years left in this crisis. So we're still in the first two years of this famine. But Judah goes to his dad. He steps up as a leader. And it's, it's interesting that it's Judah... Judah being the fourth son, it should have been Reuben, but we saw last week, every time Reuben stands up, he's really self-serving. He offers to, to take Benjamin down back to Egypt. And he says, look, if I fail, you can kill my sons. Well, thank you for that offer. But Judah doesn't do that. Judah takes full responsibility. But we see the crisis happens. Judah comes to his dad, pleads for him, reminds him of his obligation to the family. In Israel, Jacob responds the way that we, we can pretty much assume he's been responding for months. Rather than dealing with the crisis at hand, he, he blames them for being in the position that they're now in. Why, oh why, did you have to give him so much information about us? Why did you tell him about the fact that you had another younger brother? Why, why did you have to tell him about any of it? I sent you there to buy food. Going to the shopping market, you know, telling them, talking with the, 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 the shop, the, 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 uh, the person at the, at the register. I didn't think it would be a problem. I told him I had kids. I didn't think I'd have to go home and get my kids and bring them back to show them that I had kids so that I wasn't lying about having kids so I could bring the groceries home. And the brothers respond to this outrageous attack with themselves arguing once again with their dad. And it, what we see here is that this, this family is being torn apart. 
No one is taking responsibility. No one is taking leadership. No one is willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the family until Judah steps up in verses 8 to 10. And Judah does what Israel should have done. Judah does what Reuben should have done. He offers himself. He says, I myself, I will take Benjamin. And if I fail, the blame will be on me forever. In light of this, Israel concedes. He tells him, if it's got to be this way, it's got to be this way. But take, take with you some special gifts. Clearly, it looks like, by all appearances, this man has it out for you. So I want you to take these, these items that have special significance. I want you to take them and give them to him. A little, a little balm. I don't know if that's, you know, lip balm. You know, a little Burt's Bees wax, whatever it is. Special, special thing. A little honey. Spices, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. These things seem so ordinary. And yet these are expensive, nice items. And you can imagine in a time of great, of great loss, a time of famine when there is little food, little to no food outside of Egypt, these items would have been extremely valuable. Just take them down. Perhaps these will make him favorable towards you. He clearly doesn't like you. Maybe these will help smooth the way. More than that, he says, take double the money. So you're going to take the money that you took down before. And you're going to take it and you're going to give it to him. And you're going to pay back what was given to you. More than that, you're going to take down more money to buy what needs to be bought. So take, take money, take double the money in your hand. So he's trying to work out any way to, to make sure that this trip is a success. But it should have been a success last time. And it wasn't. And what we see of Israel, Jacob here, in verse 14, he finally, after doing all he can, he finally does what he should have done in the first place. He entrusts himself entirely over to God. And may God Almighty give you mercy before that man, that he may release your brother, your other brother, that's Simeon and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. I want you to notice, he, he is entrusting, he is showing, finally, faith. And his faith is not just in God. It is in a certain attribute, a certain perfection of God. It is in God Almighty. When we see that throughout the book of Genesis, it is tying it into this truth that God rules and he reigns over everything. That he is the one providentially guiding all things. He is recognizing now that it is God who has brought about all of these events. The famine This issue with this man, he is God Almighty. Even in the face of all of this conflict, even in the face of doubt, God is Almighty. 
We don't have enough food to eat, but God is almighty. My brother, my son is in prison. God is almighty. You're going to a land where they worship other gods and you have little to no power. And if they attack you and imprison you, there's nothing you're going to be able to do. All we have to rely on now is God almighty. May God almighty give you mercy. Not only is he trusting in the almighty God, he is trusting in the merciful God. You know, this is fascinating. This is the first time, not only in the book of Genesis, this is the first time in the Bible this word for mercy is used. In fact, the concept of mercy has only been broached with a different word many chapters earlier, but only one other time. In fact, the only two times in the book of Genesis where we see this word, it's translated mercy here, used in the book of Genesis and later is both used in this chapter. Jacob Israel is banking not only in the power and the rule and the reign of God, but that this God who rules and reigns is himself merciful. Genuine faith recognizes that it offers God nothing. That's what Jacob is recognizing here. He he has nothing to give to God that's going to secure the the end result that he wants. He is banking only on one thing, that God will be merciful. Genuine Christian faith in God doesn't say, if I do this, God will give me that. Genuine faith in God recognizes that if God will indeed save us, It is not because we have done something or that we will be something or will do something or that we are religious enough or good enough or or anything in and of ourselves. It depends solely on God himself. And I want you to see it is he makes this faith in God contingent on nothing else. It is not contingent on anything he does or anything he wants from God. You see him say, and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. And if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. We think about that for a moment. Think about sitting, parents, think about sitting in the hospital with your child, not knowing what will be the outcome Praying for healing, praying for help, praying for recovery. And then at the end saying, if I am bereaved, I'm bereaved. What Joseph is, I'm sorry, what what Israel, Jacob is doing here is he is completely giving this entirely over to God. He is putting not only Simeon's Fate, but the fate of his own family in the hands of God himself. Whether it be good, whether it be bad, oh God, it is in your hands. 
He doesn't say, do this and I'll keep trusting you, O God. Do this and then I'll follow you. Or I'll trust in you unless you don't do what I want to. He simply says, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. You know, too many of us make our faith in God dependent on God doing something we want. Too many Christians, too many churches make our following after God contingent on Him working for us. This isn't faith in God at all. This is faith in God as a crutch, willing to lean on Him as, as long as He helps us in our need. And then when we no longer need Him, we no longer go to Him. This is faith in God as a genie, willing to trust Him as long as He delivers on our wishes. This is faith in God as a ticket, willing to hold on to Him as long as He gets us access where we want to go. But none of this is real, genuine, saving faith. Genuine faith follows in the footsteps of Israel that entrusts everything, good or bad, over to the hands of God. We see this echoed throughout the Bible. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12, Joab is leading the armies of Israel with his brother. And as he's got his army out in the field, he finds himself quickly surrounded by a much larger force on one side and another, and he divides his force in two, puts his brother in charge of half the force, and he puts himself in charge of the other half. And he says this, Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. We see this kind of faith evident at the end of Habakkuk. Where Habakkuk knows that God's judgment is coming. And he writes these words. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I want you to understand what he's saying there. He's like, look, if we lose everything... If there is no food, if our house is taken from us, if our family is lost, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. This is the stunning faith displayed by Job in Job chapter 13, verse 15, where he declares, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. We see this faith, this submission to the will of God, pictured for us preeminently by Christ Jesus. We're there in the Garden of Gethsemane, waiting, waiting his accusers, waiting for Judas to lead the troops to them. Out praying in the dead of night, joined by none of his disciples, who have all drifted off to sleep knowing what awaits him. Christ tells the Father, not as I will, 
but as you will. And at the cross of Christ, Jesus, the God-man, shows us just what it looks like to trust in God. At the cross of Christ, Jesus shows us that we have a God in whom we can trust. For through Him, Christ is crushed on behalf of sinners. That all who hope in Him might be freed and forgiven. So that we may be assured that faith in God will not yield a fruitless result. Friend, have you entrusted yourself to the Almighty God? Have you entrusted yourself to the mercy of God? Or have you made your following after God, your faith in Him, contingent on Him working and doing for you? Are you trusting now in God Almighty? Are you trusting now in God who is merciful? Friend, trust in His mercy. And brother and sister, we we need God's mercy. Day by day by day. I love the progression of, of growth we see even in the Apostle Paul in his letters in the New Testament. In AD 55, as he's writing 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say, I am the least of all the apostles. Five years later, in AD 60, as he writes uh, his letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3, he will say, I am the least of all the saints. And then two years later, as he is penning his first letter to Timothy, he is able to say, I am the greatest, the foremost of all sinners. Banking more and more and more on the mercy of God. The farther we go with God, the more, the more we entrust ourselves to Him and draw near to Him. He is a, a light and His glory illumines our life. And what it shows us is darkness. It shows us pain. It shows us sin. And part of what drawing near to God does is it shows us how far short we come, which only then shows us a greater appreciation for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Which is why Paul is able to say in the very next verse, after he confesses that he is the greatest of all sinners, he writes, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I received mercy. The very first step to restoration and reconciliation that was needed by Jacob and his sons was a humble leaning on God alone. To put it all in his hands, to give it to him. On human standards, this looks like the greatest of all risks. Jacob 
is leaning at this moment on God to make this guy in Egypt that he does not know favorable so that he'll release his son Simeon. And so that food will come back. He is banking everything on God. On the human side, this this risk-cost analysis is out of control. But having put everything into the hand of God, there is no risk. For God cannot, will not fail. Because he has purchased his people with nothing short than the blood of Christ. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, trust in him, lean in him, run to him this morning. Let's pray. Our God, you have shown us such extraordinary mercy and grace. And we confess, O oh God, that we have so often fallen away, so often fallen short. We are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Oh God, I pray that you will grant us grace that we may entrust it all to you. That we may be freed from anger and anxiety and fear. More than that, oh God, entrust it all to you that today those who do this for the first time may be free from sin's power and penalty. Oh, have mercy on us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.